So we're going to bring up some questions now. And I believe that you have submitted some questions, and there might be some more. If you have a question, go ahead and, and raise your hand, and someone will, will pick that up for you. In the meantime, I believe, Paul, you have a few questions, and we can start to, to answer some of those. The first question, where can we find copies of the historical documents you have referred to, and can we get access to them? Well, we have a few resources here on the table that you can come take a look at. Um, and the, obviously the LNG Water State has a lot of good resources as well, but it's nice to have things in book form. And a lot of the books, I mean, the questions on doctrine, you can still find copies of those all over the place. There's also the new annotated edition that sells at the ABC. Um, but... Um, Okay. Okay. Sorry. So you can find several books up here on the table. The annotated edition of Questions on Doctrine you can get at the ABC. Some of the other books also are available at the ABC. And then the White Estate would be a good place as well. Yeah. Let me just mention a couple things here on the on the table, and and some of the we can maybe mention a few of the resources that we used so that if you want to study more, you could, you could do that. Of course, there are original historical sources, right, the primary sources, and then there are secondary sources, and we've looked at both. Uh, but uh, uh, you can see here um, some, of the, some, some good sources for those who are just getting started in, in, into studying some of these things. Adrian, can you hold up that line? A book that, uh, that, that everyone uh, should, who is a student of Adventist history should take a look at is this book called Hindsight. It's actually difficult to, to find, uh, and so we actually have some here at Avon Hope, and if you're interested, you can contact us. But Hindsight is written by Dave Fiedler. He's a, an Adventist a church histor uh, historian, kind of an amateur historian, who's written this, uh, this book. covers a lot of the things that we've talked about here, and uh, we would recommend that. Another one that I like to use is, is a book, Libraries of the Remnant by Schwartz. There's a lot of good information in there. Uh, and then if you are interested in some of the health, health uh, work, the classic book that everyone should be reading is called The Story of Our Health Message. It's there on the corner. Paul, you want to hold that up? And it's like the classic story of how the health message came to be in the Adventist church. Uh, there's a bunch more. You can come up and take a look at it after we finish. But Adrian, if you wanted to mention a few or... Talk about a source? No? Okay. So those are some things that get you started. Okay. Next question. How do you recommend studying the writings of 1888? And how can I learn more about the 1888 message? Well, uh, if you want to, to learn more about the actual message, I would recommend that you, that you go straight to the writings of A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner. Um, anything that was written... Um, right after 1888 and 1890s uh, is probably, uh, would probably be a good place to start. Um, there are some overviews as well of that time period. One that, that I just uh, read recently that was kind of interesting to me is this one here. It's actually by uh, Wallenkamp, and it's called What Every Adventist Should Know About 1888. And it does a good job of just summarizing what happened in 1888 and gives you an idea 
of, of uh, the main characters and the storylines that are there. And it has some good conclusions as well. Of course, uh, there are, the Ellen White estate has also released a lot of the 1888 study materials, and you can go and uh, buy those. I'm not sure if they're on the CD-ROM, but you can get those at the NEABC, and uh, you can, okay, they are in the, on the CD-ROM. So you can get them on the CD-ROM or at the ABC, and you can go straight to uh, the Ellen White uh, materials from 1888. Yeah, it's a four-volume set in that paperback kind of darkish red burgundy cover. It's a good resource. I think for someone um, getting into the 1888 message, it would, be, it would be good if you first kind of researched uh, some of the biographies of, of the people that were involved, such as A.T. Jones, E.J. Wagner, um, George Butler, Uriah Smith, and others. Um, so you can kind of see where these guys were coming from. And uh, if you understand some of the historical perspective of it, um, then you can also kind of get into to the theology um, aspect of it as well. Um, and that's how, that's how I, I started studying um, the 1888 message, and I was just fascinated by not only the theological aspects of the of the debate, but also the human side of it, and to be able to draw some of the the principles um, of this whole of the of that time period is uh, is good for anyone. Um, we're just kind of talking up here about different books, but. E.J. Wagner wrote a really good book called Christ and His Righteousness. It's still, still available by various sources. And then if you want to learn more about A.T. Jones, he also wrote a lot of good books, and a good one is Lessons on Faith. Mm. That'd be a good place to start. Well, that's Jones and Wagner. Okay. Yeah. You know, I guess there is one thing I would add, because Adrian was talking about studying the human side of Jones and Wagner. There are some historians that... Um, in my view, um, vilified Jones and Wagner by saying things like they taught the Holy Flush Doctrine in 1888 and stuff like that, and it's just not true. And the, so be careful, like, you know, Jones and Wagner in the early 1880s, early 1890s, what they were teaching was from God. And so if, if you read a historian that says that what they were teaching in the 1880s or 1890s was bad theology, then the, the problem is probably with the historian and not with Jones and Wagner's theology. That's just something to keep in mind. Next question. I have heard people say that it is good for us to question what we believe and why we believe it, even when referring to QOD. What is your opinion? Well, I guess since I did the QOD class, I'll answer that question. So I guess it depends on what you mean by questioning our beliefs. Um, the Bible says that we should be able to give, an, give a reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and fear. So if you don't know why you believe what you believe, then you should go back and start studying so that you can give an answer for why you believe what you believe. Don't just take your parents' word for it, so to speak. But to approach the doctrines of our faith that have been established clearly on the basis of the Word of God and on the writings of Ellen White, and to take 
an approach to the doctrines by saying, I'm going to be open-minded as to whether or not the teaching on the sanctuary is from God or maybe it's an error. You're putting yourself on the devil's playground. If you read the history of the development of our doctrines, God clearly was in the development of our doctrines. And to deny his presence in the development of our doctrines is to deny God's spirit in the early phases of the Advent movement. And remember, Ellen White says that the light from the midnight cry shines at the beginning of the pathway and shines all the way to the second coming. So if you start to reject 1844 and the sanctuary, um, which came out of the light of the midnight cry, you're already falling off the path. So if you have the mentality of, I'm going to question our core beliefs, you're, you're teetering on the edge. Maybe I can add to that. There is that slippery slope that Norma mentioned. But I believe that, that a part of that is really what your personal motivation is. And only, only you know inside what your reasoning is. There's nothing wrong with uh, scrutinizing your beliefs or, you know, um, being able to, to know what you believe. But if you go to, into something with the motivation of trying to justify your own, your own uh, perspective, your own agenda, perhaps finding something that, that uh, meets your own experience or somehow makes you feel better about yourself, um, that's not, that's something that, that is going to inherently be biased. And so you got to just keep that in mind. What is my personal motivation for why I'm doing this? Is it just to doubt or is it really to, to, to find truth? I just wanted to mention as well that um, there's a text in uh, 1 Timothy 6 verse uh, 4. Um, he says, he is... I guess we should start with verse 3. It says, If any man teach otherwise, consent not to be wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but dotting about questions and strifes of words, whereof coming, uh, cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. And then he goes on to talk about other stuff as well. Um, there's another place where he talks about ever questioning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Um, there's, a, there's a place to, to ask what, what you believe and why you believe it. And it is important for us to do that, but at some point we've got to come to a point where we understand what we believe and we, are, and we decide to, to stand upon it. And uh, sometimes, sometimes people will forever want to keep asking questions, keep asking questions about things, but they never really take a stand on anything. They never really know what they believe, you know, and they're always taking in more information, but they can never come to a decision. And that is, that is dangerous because if you do not come to a decision about what you believe, then you'll never stand for anything. And then you'll be blown about by every wind of doctrine. And so it is important that you do that. At the same time, when, like Tim alluded to, you have to question your motive for why you're studying these things out. Sometimes it is good to study, to, to learn, but sometimes some people learn, uh, they ask questions just to raise up strife. And if your study is leading to a place where you are coming into conflict, uh, deep conflict with those who believe, uh, who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're trying to show you from the Bible uh, where you are 
um, in error and you just keep on producing uh, your, your material um, or what you believe, at some point um, it, is, it is not going to be conducive to your spiritual growth. All doctrine is there for reproof and for edification, but it's also to bring us into unity, the knowledge of Christ. And if we do not come into unity with the rest of our believers then, um, that, that believe uh, in Christ, then at some point um, our study is in vain. Next question. Please tell us a little more about how Adventists became involved with foreign missions. With what? Foreign missions. The Adventist Church um, began with um, the viewpoint that, that they were, uh, before they even were called the Adventist Church, they, they believed that they were the, the only chosen few that were left after the Great Disappointment. And they believed that the, the, the door of probation had been closed. And so no one else could be recruited in uh, into the gates of heaven. However, over time, they, they were, through the Bible and, and Bible study, they were able to change some of those beliefs um, to where they saw the greater mission purpose. And as a result, they, they started the Missionary Track Society, uh, which, which sent tracks all over the world of different materials. Um, and Mrs. White was also given instruction by God that they were, uh, for example, she said that young men should study other languages so that they can go and, and uh, translate and also preach uh, the gospel in other languages in other countries. And as a result, they began to do that. The first Adventist missionary uh, that was sent officially was J.N. Andrews, and he was sent uh, to Europe. And uh, shortly after that, there were some others that were sent as well. Uh, to other parts of Asia um, and later Africa as well. Next question is, what are some of the current theological factions in the, Advent, uh, in the SDA church and where did they originate? Well, that's a complicated question, but I guess, you know, there's... <clears throat> To just look at things in the big picture, God raised up the Advent movement, and Adrian talked about the development of present truth back in the early 1840s and 50s and so forth. And our church was relatively theologically united, um, plus or minus a few points here and there, for example, the Ten Horns in 1888. Um, but theologically, the church pretty much had a harmonious unit of beliefs until questions on doctrine came in. And you may wonder, well, how could questions on doctrine alter the theological landscape of Adventism? Well, the ministry magazine, which went to all the ministers, trumpeted this book as the official position of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Eventually, the leading theologians at our Adventist colleges and universities started to um, basically take hold of the theology in this book, and it created several different things, I, I suppose. At our places of higher learning, um, the 
the approach that we are saved by justification only, therefore we never stop sinning till Jesus comes, became the popular theology um, on our main campuses throughout Adventism. And that's probably what most of our young people are taught as they go through our schools. Of course, obviously there were some Adventists who were not happy with the theology of questions on doctrine. And the way dissent was dealt with during the time of questions on doctrine wasn't necessarily the greatest from the general conference. And so some independent ministries grew out of that who called themselves historic Adventists and they maintained the theological beliefs of Adventism prior to 1957. And so you sort of had two-way split develop in the church. Um, uh, there were some other issues. Um, there was, um, at the same time that questions on doctrine was, was creating controversy, um, Robert Whelan and Donald Short, who were missionaries to Africa, had found beautiful light in the 1888 message, so to speak, and they wanted more information released from the General Conference and Leroy Froome, who was the same guy at the GC who was spearheading QOD, wouldn't let Wheeland and Short have access to the materials in the White Estate that pertained to 1888, which created this idea of a conspiracy in the General Conference, and people are always quick to latch on to conspiracy theories, perhaps. I don't know. But anyway, Whelan and Short were doing a good job in trying to get the 1888 message out there. Froome was preventing that from happening. And so you had eventually um, the 1888 message study committee develop, who had a, a, a special interest in the 1888 message. So you had historic Adventists, you have 1888 message study committee, and of course Desmond Ford, as I said, latched onto the questions on doctrine theories and further developed those, and he encouraged those who accepted his teachings to stay within the church so that they could have an effect on Adventism that, because the church needed to understand the gospel of grace. We didn't understand grace. And there are many people today who have a one-point theological emphasis, which is grace. And their whole thing is, is, do you understand grace? Well, what do they mean by that? It comes from the Desmond Ford teachings, which is basically that because of God's grace, we are saved, and we basically will keep on sinning, but Jesus loves us so much that he will save us by his grace, and no matter what we do, nothing we do can cause us to be lost. So that's one of the prominent theological factions in the church. Um, the other, some of the other theological factions that have come into the church in more recent years, um, there's this, and I'm not even sure where this originates from. Um, I guess I've, the ones that I've mentioned at least give you some idea where their theological concepts originated from, but there's also a movement in the church called the character of God movement, which basically teaches that God doesn't destroy, um, that he is so merciful that he will not punish the wicked for their sins. Now, there are some conservative Adventists who take a variant of that and say, oh yes, people who are sinners will die at, you know, the second death, but um, 
But God doesn't actively destroy them. He just withdraws his presence, and it's the withdrawal of his presence that causes the people to be destroyed, which kind of goes against the clear sayings of the Bible. Um, Steve Wahlberg did a nice job of, of covering those issues when he was here a couple of months ago. There's also some factions out there that believe in feast-keeping, that that's the way to heaven. There's other factions out there that teach that there is no Holy Spirit, that there's the Father, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit is just the Spirit between the two, which goes directly against clear statements from Ellen White on that topic. Um, But I think the main theological factions in the church, if you look at it today, you have what Tim talked about, the GYC movement, which is a movement of young people who are trying to be faithful to the doctrines and the three angels' message that God gave to this church. Then there's another faction that has accepted the Des Ford idea, and they want everything to be under grace. Let's do away with 1844 and Ellen White, and let's just all love each other and get along, and you can believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, and we'll all go to heaven. And then there's some other various theological groups that are out there um, with maybe particular perspectives. But anyway, kind of a long answer, sorry. I'd like to mention something. You know, you can, you can uh, cut this pie in many ways. And throughout the history of, of the church, there have always been seemingly, you know, there's always wheat and tares and there's always... Truth and error, right? I th- and, and I don't want to minimize any of the theological um, differences because they are out there. But I believe that a lot of what makes these things even worse is the way that we treat each other. And some of these factions, I believe, uh, even stem from the... Uh, in fact, we, we talked about some of them in 1888 and, and elsewhere. There's a lot of, of how we treat each other. For instance, in 1888... Uh, when when E.J. Wagner was was giving his talks, he was uh, he was giving these beautiful sermons on the matchless charms of Christ, right? And there were people that were not in agreement with you know with him on on let's say the law in Galatians or whatever, and they were kind of rowdy. And while he was speaking, they would shout out from the audience. They would shout out, "Oh, we can't see you," you know. We and, and they were alluding to the fact that he was short. And they were trying to get under his skin. And they were trying to, to distract him from, from his preaching. And those types of spirits, I believe, is directly from Satan. Because, because it's one thing we have theological differences and we need to go back to the word and study for ourselves. It's another thing when, when the character of Christ is so absent from us that we would treat our brothers and our sisters in such, such a way. And so... I'm not minimizing the theological differences, but what I'm saying is that if we can't treat each other with Christ-like love, then, um, then we're going to create a lot of, of division as well. Next question. Did Elder Spicer oppose the buying of CME? And can you tell us more about him? You know, I, I was the one that did the history of CME, and to be honest, I did not uh, cover any of uh, Elder Spicer's, um, you know, uh, involvement in that. So I, I, I do not know. Okay, that's fair. Next question. 
What became of Joshua Himes, William Miller, and S.S. Snow after 1844? Joshua Himes, William Miller, and Samuel Snow each played a key role in the Millerite movement, as you know. William Miller, of course, was the preacher that God raised up to point to the 2300-day prophecy. Joshua Himes was a minister at the Chardon Street Chapel in Boston who basically brought that message that William Miller was given to the small towns into the big cities and made newspapers, and it took off. And Samuel Snow was the man who set the date for October 22. None of those three men accepted the present truth of the Sabbath or the sanctuary, unfortunately. And Ellen White writes about how William Miller was failing in health and he relied on those who had helped him, namely Joshua Himes. And she said that the sin of his rejection of the Sabbath message and of the third angel's message rested on those who kept him from accepting it. He would see the light and they would beat it down. And so she says that angels guard the precious dust of his grave and that he will be resurrected. She also says if he had accepted the third angel's message that he would have been revived and the work would have been finished. So that would have been, you know, we wouldn't be here, but that was the Lord's original plan. And she said just as Moses erred just before going into the promised land, William Miller erred just about before going into heavenly Canaan. So William Miller was a modern day Moses, so to speak. So he died December 20. 1849, five years after 1844. Joshua Himes lived many years longer and eventually came down with cancer and came to the Battle Creek Sanitarium to be treated. He um, exchanged some correspondence with Ellen White. You can read this in the Arthur White six-volume set, which is a biography of Ellen White. And in those letters, he tells Ellen White that if he were a young man again, he would give all of his life and energy to the proclamation of the third angel's message. So God is the judge, not us, but it seems that he accepted in his dying days the third angel's message that Adventists were teaching. And um, Ellen White was able to have some dialogue with him that may have brought him into the truth. Samuel Snow, who set the date for October 22 and was used by God in a powerful way, as best as we can tell, Got, became engaged in fanaticism after October 22 and eventually departed from the faith. I be, I'm not going to... I've read some of the fanatical behavior that he engaged in, and I would be sort of making it up off the top of my head if I were to say right now, so I'm just going to say he was engaged in some kind of fanatical behavior after 1844, and as best as we know, he left the faith. So it's a reminder to us that even though we may be on the straight and narrow now, and we can give a message that begins the midnight cry. The Bible says, let him, thinks, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So. Okay. Is it true that Adventists developed their doctrines out of fanaticism in the early Sabbath sanctuary conferences? You know, there are some historians who say that. And they say that if you look at the history of Adventism, fanaticism and error have always been around and somehow out of fanaticism and error came forth truth and um, at the risk of being um, straightforward you have historians like George Knight who say things like this 
Um, however, if you read Ellen White's writings, you read about her and James White and Hiram Edson and Joseph Bates combating the fanatics as they were promoting truth. So to say that James and Ellen White and Joseph Bates and Hiram Edson were fanatics and somehow the Lord impressed upon their minds truth while they were engaging in fanatical behavior is pure revisionism of history, as best as I can tell. And Ellen White was always fighting against fanaticism. The Millerites fought against fanaticism. And so, to, and I've heard people say, hey, look, um, there was fanaticism in the early Adventist Sabbath Sanctuary Conferences, but the Lord blessed out of those. So why do you have a problem with questions on doctrine, even though Froome intentionally lied to, to change the nature of Christ? Because that was good for the church also. And I don't buy either of those arguments, obviously. Dishonesty is dishonesty, and that never glorifies God. And fanaticism doesn't glorify God either, and God didn't work through those mechanisms to bring forth the truth in our church. Okay. What happened at the 1919 Bible Conference? The 1919 Bible Conference was um, one class that we weren't able to, uh, to cover. We thought about it, but uh, eventually we, we didn't uh, cover that. Uh, and just briefly, um, it was, if you look at the time period of the conference, it was right after, a few years after Mrs. White had passed away. And the church was trying to come to grips with what exactly to do with her writings, where to place her um, in terms of the Bible. Uh, she had always said that she was a messenger of the Lord and she was a lesser light leading to the greater light. Um, and so they were, they were talking about that. They also had some questions about the great controversy. And uh, one of the key figures um, was Prescott. Uh, he was one of the church administrators of the time. And he uh, was one of the leading um, members in, in that uh, conference. Uh, one of the things also that they kind of discussed a little bit was the, the issue of, um, of uh, the schools and accreditation and education um, and things like that. So it was a wide-ranging conference with a lot of issues. Unfortunately, we weren't able to cover um, a lot of those. But one of the things that did come out of it was um, they were talking about uh, the great controversy, and especially some of the revisions that were made, um, and how Prescott said that he was with Mrs. White when, when she made those revisions. Um, and those revisions were made where some historical documents were from which she took some material for the first uh, edition of the great controversy. Um, some of it was, you know, in later light, it had been shown to be slightly inaccurate or uh, not as representative as she had wanted it to be, so she um, added some materials in the 1911 edition. But each one of those, she personally uh, presided over those changes. And he was there uh, while helping her through that process. So uh, some of that was brought up. Um, ultimately, um, all three of us uh, decided to pass on that, on that conference. But these were some of the issues that they, that they explored. Next question. What is the best way to address misinformation about our history? Well, I'll, I guess I'll start on this one. Um, 
don't just take a historian's word for it. Don't take my word for history. Um, you can read for yourself and go back and study the issues. Go back and, and study the Bible and the writings of L.M. White and, for example, Jones and Wagner or Hiram Edson or Joseph Bates or even read passages from Questions on Doctrine for yourself. The, I guess the other thing I would say is, is that as, as Adventists, we have become prone to just take the scholar's word for it. And, you know, the biblical admonition is to be like the Bereans to study whether or not those things are so. We should study for ourselves. We should know for ourselves. And just because Desmond Ford gets up there and says the scholars all, all agree that to, to be justified is to be declared righteous only, well, I don't care if all the scholars agree when Ellen White says that to be justified is to be made righteous, I'm going to go with Ellen White over the scholars. So I guess the way I've always thought is the Bible and the writings of Ellen White are the authority when it comes to doctrine. I'm going to stick with that. And if a theologian comes along and he starts to, he or she starts to say things that go contrary to the Bible or the writings of Ellen White. You have a choice as to who, which, which side you're going to believe. And I will, I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that if you stick with what the Bible and the writings of Ellen White say, you'll save yourself from a lot of theological disasters in our time. And that's the best way I can think of to avoid misinformation about our history. Okay, next question is, Tim mentioned 15 general conferences in three years. What were those years? These, these were not general conference sessions like we're used to thinking about now where, you know, um, we don't have them every year. And so, these are actually, these were actually just general conferences, conferences that were general. And so uh, it was the leader, just leaders from this Avon movement that would get together. And so this happened primarily, let me see if I have it here in my notes. Uh, it was primarily in the, the years between 1840 and 1844 or so. Let me see if I have a, an actual date on that. The first one was in 1840, and 15 more in the next three years. So between 1840 and 1843 or so, they had the 15 general conferences. Okay, can you tell us the story of J.N. Loughborough and Wake in Iowa? Walk on? Walk. Okay. Jan Loughborough was converted to the Adventist message shortly after 1844. He became one of the great preachers in the Advent movement. He went around and was an itinerant preacher, relying on the money of the believers in the towns that he went to to make a living. He wasn't paid very well. His wife wasn't as self-sacrificing as he was, she complained to him about the bad pay he was getting. 
Jay and Andrews actually invited him to come work and walk on Iowa as a carpenter to make some money. So Jay and Loughborough, who would be the equivalent of a Mark Finley or a Doug Batchelor, left preaching to go become a carpenter to make money. In that day and time, we didn't have Facebook, internet, email, phones. And so James and Ellen White didn't know that he left until Ellen White saw it in a vision. The Lord told her that she needed to go to walk on Iowa and get him back. The other p part of the story is, is that this happened during the time that James White wrote the articles to the Laodicean about how Adventists were the Laodicean church. And there were maybe five to 10,000 members. They got several hundred letters saying we needed to hear this, but the one place the letters didn't come from was Wacon, Iowa. So James and Ellen White take the sleigh from Battle Creek to Wacon, Iowa. That's probably, what, 300, 400 miles? I don't know. It's, it's, a, good, it's a good clip over. And um, they crossed the Mississippi River on December 24. There was like a foot of water over a sheet of ice. They risked their lives to go find these people. This tells you about the love they had for souls. And they arrived in Iowa, and their sleigh rolls up, and Jan Loughborough is standing on a ladder, nailing nails into a board. And he looks down, and there's God's prophet staring up at him. And she says to Elder Loughborough, What doest thou hear, Elijah? <laughs> then she says again, What doest thou hear, Elijah? And he still hasn't said anything. And then she says, What doest thou hear, Elijah? No response. He comes down the ladder and says, let's go take you in, find you a place to stay. Word quickly hit Wacon that James and Ellen White had shown up to town. And the reaction was, oh great, she's going to have a vision and give us a testimony of rebuke. Sounds like fun. And that's ultimately what happened. Um, they got together, had meetings, and James and Ellen White were determined not to leave until they got Elder Loughborough back. And he wasn't quite ready to come back the first night. What's interesting is that his wife repented first. She stood up and said, I have been a bad minister's wife. I didn't encourage him in the work that he should have been doing. She repented. The next night, Elder Loughborough stood up and said, I've held in my hand the, hand, or the hammer of a carpenter for the last time. And he went back with the whites to Battle Creek right after that and continued as a powerful preacher in the church from that point forward. And um, it's a reminder to us that we may think we're doing good things, but if, if we've lost our focus for why we're a Seventh-day Adventist, you know, we're the Laodicean church. And it's very, very easy to become Laodicean. Just a side note to that, too, is that Jan Andrews, who initially had, was the one that actually invited John Loughborough to come to Wacon, uh, he was there during that, that little revival where people understood what they had done and they repented of that, and he did too. And his health wasn't so good, so it took him a little, a little while to recover, but when he recovered, he rejoined uh, the, the ministry and he also resumed uh, his, his, uh, his service to the church. And so many people were, were impacted by that, that very sacrificial trip that Ellen White made. Next question. What did Ellen G. White mean when she said that much of the preaching before 1888 was dry as the hills of Galboa? 
And how can we apply this today? Well, uh, the easiest way to explain that is, is, is something that I think all of us are, uh, have a tendency to do sometimes, and that is uh, when we begin to study truth, we can sometimes, and we can get excited about a system of truth, learning doctrines, right? And we can forget that, that those doctrines actually should point us somewhere, right, to the cross and to the Christ of the Bible. And so during this time, and, and actually that's probably partly what the Laodicean message was trying to tell the Adventist church as well, was that in their zeal for, for mapping out all these doctrines that were present truth to them, they had forgotten to include Christ. And that kind of, uh, kind of took all the power out of the message. And ultimately, um, God had to do something very drastic to bring them back, and that's what 1888 was all about. I think also, it, it's very easy when you, when you um, are, say, for example, in an evangelistic series and you're preaching about the Sabbath, to go from one text to another, you know, just, just proving that the Sabbath really is the seventh day, and, you know, it was, that is a day that has been kept since creation. And, uh, and that's just one example, but it is very easy to become kind of hard-nosed about it, and, uh, and preach a very logical sermon, um, and people buy into that logic and come into the church. But if you, if you don't have the softening experience um, of Christ on your heart, then um, you can preach all, all you want, uh, but it will, not, uh, it will not be shown in your life. And the, the message of the 1880s um, and that conference, that culminated in that conference, was not a, a really a change of beliefs, it was just um, putting Christ back at the center of what we all believe. And um, that, is, that is what uh, was missing um, in the earlier years um, after the 1850s. Let me just read that quote. Then you'll get the, a little bit more context, okay? That quote is actually found in Review and Herald, March 11, 1890. And this is what Ellen White wrote. She said, As a people, we have preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Gilboa that had neither dew nor rain. Then she said this, We must preach Christ in the law, as there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to the famishing flock of God. Does that help you understand what she meant by dry as the hills of Gilboa? Next question. How would you explain to a non-Adventist that William Miller and Ellen G. White were not the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? but it was a movement led by God. But that it was a movement led by God. You know, what you need to do is you need to actually go back and, and read the stories of how this movement started. Uh, I think this is an example of misinformation that can be out there when people, they just know like little details of stories, but they don't really know the big picture. Um, if you go back and, and you read and you find out what exactly happened, it'll be abundantly clear that, that William Miller, um, that, uh, well, I mean, part of it is that he was actually a little bit reluctant to share the message for a long time. When he finally did, it took a lot of, a lot of different people coming together to, to do this. And also the fact that he was never an Adventist. He, he never fully accepted 
all the truths. So, I mean, I think it just some of the facts are missing when people make assertions like that. Norman, do you have any comments? <clears throat> Specifically as to whether or not William Miller or Ellen White were founders of the Seventh Adventist Church, clearly William Miller was not. He did not accept the Sabbath. However, it is a historical fact that James and Ellen White and Joseph Bates um, were founders of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, and Ellen White being one but not the only founder of our church. Um, to say that she wasn't wouldn't be wouldn't square with the facts either. I mean, she clearly did play a role in the founding of the Seventh-day Adventist Church along with her husband James White and Joseph Bates. And Hiram Metzen also played a key role. But it wasn't one person, and William Miller certainly wasn't one of those. So. And maybe what they're getting at is that um, Ellen White definitely was, was very involved in, in the beginnings of the Adventist Church, but she never held a leadership role. And uh, she left that to her husband and to others. And so hers, her role was a little different than maybe some of the other founders. So it's probably just semantics. I, I just want to add to that, that even when the Adventist Church uh, was, I don't know what the right word is, incorporated or was organized, um, the general conference, the first general conference president was not James White. Um, it was um, Elder Byington, I think. And the reason for um, having him there, he was a very capable man. One of the reasons was that to avoid the fact that, um, of someone saying that, that James White had, you know, started the church and, and pretty much taken the reins of power. So it is something um, to keep in mind of. Next question. What was the role of Robert Pearson in the Desmond Ford crisis? Uh, well, Robert Pearson was actually, he was still GC president when the Palmdale Conference in 1976 took place, but by the time the full Glacier View controversy erupted, Neil Wilson was president. However, as we discussed in our history class, Elder Pearson, before Desmond Ford came out with his theology that basically split the church. Elder Pearson had the idea that it would be nice to bring the 1888 message in its original form given by Jones and Wagner to bring those messages to the forefront of the church. And he looked at the theological landscape and realized that many of the theologians in the church would take issue with what Jones and Wagner said about righteousness by faith in 1888. And even though Elder Pearson believed those messages, he was afraid that by bringing it to the forefront, it would at that time split the church. And so he figured maybe by waiting for another time, the timing would be better. But what ended up happening is just a few years later, Desmond Ford comes onto the scene and splits the church anyway. Um, De, um, Robert Pearson regretted to his dying day that he didn't bring that message back to the forefront of the church. Obviously, I believe he was a godly man. We'll see him in the kingdom. That was <clears throat> a mistake that he made that he probably wished he could have back. Next question. Why is it that the truth about the QOD and Desmond Ford is not often talked about? Because it's controversial <laughs> and people disagree. 
there's a lot of Adventists today who actually agree with Desmond Ford's theology, at least on salvation. And they don't see anything wrong with his teaching that to be justified is to be declared righteous only and that will never reach perfection before Jesus comes. And the longer time has gone on, people wonder why he had his credentials removed. And even more in our current day, it's become acceptable to be a Seventh-day Adventist and not believe that 1844 has any theological significance. So to talk about those issues then becomes viewed as being divisive and controversial, but the bottom line is, and I said this before, truth is not divisive. It's the error that has been brought into our church that has been divisive. So let's not be afraid of the truth. Remember what Elder Pearson's mistake was. He was afraid that the truth of the message from 1888, of 1888 would split the church. Well, instead, the error from Desmond Ford split the church. So let's never back down from preaching the truth in a positive, Christ-centered, powerful way. Um, and if you know, the issues of QOD and Desmond Ford need to be brought up so that we understand the theological landscape, so be it. But I would also caution to say let's not have QOD slash Desmond Ford Sabbath school class where we talk about QOD and Desmond Ford for the entire quarter. I mean, you know, that's just an illustration to make a point. Um, let's talk about the truth. Um, now, to spend one class on QODU, to spend one class on Desmond Ford so we understand the issues, that's fine. But to spend an entire quarter on it is probably excessive. I also want to mention that um, a lot of these things happened 20 years ago. And a lot of the ministers of that time, or even, or even earlier, are, are retired and so some of those warriors of that time are gone um, to their retirement or have passed, on, you know, passed away. Some are still, still around uh, that remember uh, how things were. And the, th the point I want to make is that when you have been immersed in, in this, uh, this system of theology, you grew up with it, you went to school with it, your professors preached it, um, you learned it, then, then it's hard to, to see, see the different side. And I just want to point out something that um, Elder Froome wrote um, regarding the education of our ministers especially. He says, How dare a man contemplate or have the temerity to present the degree of a doctor of divinity gained in the universities of Babylon as a credential for teaching or preaching this threefold message, the second stipulation of which is, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Come out of her, my people. How dare we accept such a Babylonian credential in lieu of mastery of the truth? Shall man go into Babylon to gain strength and wisdom to call out men out of Babylon? To ask the question is but to disclose how far some have compromised with Babylon as they have gone back to Babylon to drink from her wells of wisdom. Oh, for the living waters of truth uh, fresh from the word. So this is something that, that he wrote. And the reality today is that many of, of our young uh, theological scholars are going to evangelical institutions and getting their degrees, uh, advanced degrees, um, past Andrews. And as a result, when they come back, um, they, they do have um, a different frame of reference. And that frame of reference 
um, when brought up by some of the uh, so you know some of the Adventists who believe um, the way Mrs. White and the Bible um, were originally uh, that we believe. As a result, what happens is. Uh, they view it as divisive because they have grown up in it, they have studied it all their lives, and they cannot see a different picture. That is, that is one of the reasons why it is, um, it is divisive. Just one side point. It's ironic that Leroy Froome talked about going to the Babylonian institutions then to come back and teach the three angels' messages when eventually he compromised with the churches of Babylon to gain acceptance with Babylon so we wouldn't be identified as a cult. So he was clear thinking on the earlier point, but then later on with QOD, he clearly compromised. Okay, our final question of the afternoon. Do you think this, this could be the final generation? And what is our role in ensuring that it happens? Well, we covered a little bit of that this morning, and, and one of the reasons that I brought up, and I believe strongly in this, is that we need to have young people that truly study their Bibles and, and uh, know the church's history and understand the prophetic identity and mission uh, of our church. But I believe there's one other thing, actually, and I didn't have time to cover this morning, so maybe I'll, I'll just talk about it now. If you really look at at what that mystery of God is in Revelation 10, you'll find that it actually has a lot to do with unity in the church, with how we treat each other um, and uh, how we love each other. And so I believe, and of course, uh, I, you know, Jesus prayed for this in, in John, in John 17, uh, is that God's people will have not only uh, their theology correct, but they will also have Christ's character. And they'll have his love for one another. And obviously, we do stand for the truth, and we need to know what we believe. But we also need to know how to act like Jesus did. And so as we learn to do this, we will learn to get along. And I believe that it will bring a tremendous amount of unity in the truth, in faithfulness to God's word. And that unity will be a major component uh, to, uh, to the final generation as well. And I believe that can happen. Yeah, I just I also want to talk more um, about that that unity aspect. Some of the some of the um, reasons for um, rejecting um, or having issues with the 1888 message were, were really trivial. Um, the issues of the horns, and then you know the back and forth in the Science ma magazine and uh, the re Review and Herald. Um, just did not did not serve any anybody, and in the same way, um, some of the issues with uh, Elder Froome and um, M. L. Andreessen, um, even though uh, M. L. Andreessen was a very uh, conscientious man, um, he was God fearing. He had uh, met Ellen White. He had um, even gone and researched her writings um, at her house, um, and all that. Um, I, I feel, I feel that had he um, been a little more Christ-like, uh, maybe things would have been slightly different. And for for his opponents today to take that aspect of his life um, 
and then turn it around and say, well, he really, he was the one who, pretty, who talked about the final generation, but he never exemplified in his life, is, to, is, is really a bad argument because our example is not Emil Andreas and it's Jesus Christ. And we should, we should look to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who, when he was assailed in his, um, in his trial, um, did not open his mouth um, in anger and uh, answered with all respect and uh, was Christ-like. And in the same way today, as we, as we have this, this uh, question and session, this dialogue, uh, when we talk with our friends about the Bible, about truth and stuff like that, we, we need to make sure that we, and especially when we do debate the nature of Christ, we need to make sure that we have the nature of Christ. And that is, you know, if you ever want to know what the nature of Christ is, look at Philippians chapter 2. Um, and really... Uh, have the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ and that, that spirit of compassion, work, wanting to work with people. Um, Jesus worked with Judas, you know, till the very last moment that he could. Even though he knew that Judas was working against him, he worked for, him, for his salvation. And we should do the same. Um, in terms of respect for, for church authority, uh, for people that are um, our leaders in our church today, we must have... We must have respect for them, and we must uh, find ways in which we can work with them. And I think the GYC movement, uh, this youth movement that God has raised up, is working with the church, with the highest levels of the church. Pastor Mark Finley and others uh, are involved with this movement. And what we want to present is that, yes, I, I personally believe that this is um, that last generation, and each one of us has a chance um, to be part of the 144,000 to see Jesus come in our lifetime. And we, we should um, devote all our energies to working together, praying together, um, and asking the Holy Spirit to come and bring us and lead us into all truth. And when we do have um, issues of, you know, points of doctrine that, that we dispute upon, uh, that we study it out together. And when everything has been um, set on the table uh, that we we ask God to give us guidance and we follow um, exactly what the Bible says. And I think if we do that, if we have the right spirit, I think that only then God will be able to work mightily with his people and Jesus will come. I'll add just a little bit. I'll be brief. The question is, could this be the last generation? And I believe, obviously, the answer is yes, it could be. Ellen White says in Christ Object Lessons, page 69, the very famous quote, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. In the Bible, you see the concept of the four winds in Revelation 7 being held back till the servants of God, who are the 144,000, are sealed in their foreheads. And the interesting point is, is that the, the two points in history that we are at in Revelation 6 and 7 that we're between is between the falling of the stars in 1833 and the second coming of Christ. And as Tim already mentioned, in Revelation 10 it talks about the mystery of God being finished while the seventh trumpet is sounding. The seventh trumpet began to sound October 22, 1844. You can see that in Revelation 11:19. When you understand the prophetic identity and mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the our identity is the remnant people. Our mission is to receive the seal of God in our foreheads. Or another way of saying it is, 
our purpose in life is to be translated without seeing death. And no other movement in history was ever, ever raised up for that purpose. And Tim and Adrian have already hit the key points that have kept Jesus from coming all these years. You know, the church was theologically pure for the first hundred years of its existence. It had a prophet in their midst. I mean, think about it. Ellen White was with Adventism from 1844 till her death in 1915. And even with Ellen White in their midst, they couldn't cross the finish line. So what about us? You know, it, it all comes down to a personal choice on each, for each of us every day. Are we going to be surrendered 100% to Jesus Christ so that he lives in us so that the mystery of God can be finished and Jesus can come? And when God has a group of people that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and they have the love of Christ completely in their hearts, then the coming of Christ will not be long delayed. And all the things that we've seen happen in the last few years are evidence that God is working to try to bring that last generation together so we can go home. And so may we be faithful. May we do all that we can to be surrendered to Christ so that he can come in our lifetime. Okay, well, that concludes our question and answer for, the, for this afternoon. I hope you enjoyed it and we're blessed for being here. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those that were faithful in the past and that paved the way for us. We pray that you'll help us to not forget what you've done in the past and that we may keep you close as we, um, as we prepare for the future and as we um, allow you to work through us to finish the work. We thank you for this time. And we thank you for being with us. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.